Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words we read in uh, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, and uh, reading again verses 1 to 3. Daniel 2, verses 1 to 3. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. I have uh, two recurring dreams. The first is that I'm preaching and that no one's listening. And, and I know that they're not listening because they're talking as I'm trying to preach my heart out. And those who aren't talking as I'm trying to preach my heart out just get up and walk out the building so that by the end of the dream, the building is half empty and uh, the rest are just talking among themselves. The second dream is that I've forgotten to study for a Hebrew exam. And not only have I forgotten to study for this Hebrew exam, but I'm failing the Hebrew exam. I've no idea what such dreams say about the kind of person that I am. I wish I could be one of those people who dream about scoring the winning penalty, the winning goal for Scotland at Hamden, but that's not, that's not me. I'm dreaming about preaching, nobody listening, and doing a Hebrew exam, and, and failing it miserably. Well, this morning we're continuing our studies on the life of Daniel, and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had. We're looking at verses 1 down to 30 of the second chapter under three headings. We're looking at a disturbing dream, then a dependent disciple, and finally a daring declaration. A disturbing dream, a dependent disciple, a daring declaration. First, a disturbing dream. Look at verses 1 down to 13. Here the author focuses on the consternation of Nebuchadnezzar. The consternation of Nebuchadnezzar. Verses 1 to 3, we hear the demand. We can start by noting the dream there in verse 1. We're told that it was the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and we're told that he had dreams. It's important to remember that dreams in the ancient world were often seen as messages from the gods. And the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, as we'll see next week, appeared to contain an ominous message. It was about a statue, a large statue, being smashed and broken to pieces. And furthermore, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have this dream once. The author tells us that he had dreams. It was a repeated recurring dream. And we're told that this dream caused Nebuchadnezzar's spirit to be troubled and that his sleep left him. After noting the dream, we can hear the demand. Look at verses 2 and 3. The king summons the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, all the experts when it came to sorcery and dream interpretation. And having summoned them, Nebuchadnezzar tells them that he has had a dream and that his spirit is troubled to know it. He's demanding that these wise men give him the meaning and the interpretation of his dream. We can move from the demand to the difficulty in verses 4 to 11. We see the response of the wise men. Look at verses 4 down to 6. They express their wish, however genuine it was, that the king would live forever. 
And having said this, they ask the king to tell them his dream and they'll tell him the interpretation. And the king's response is quite breathtaking. He tells them that he wants them to tell him not just the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself. If they fail to do so, they'll be decapitated, torn from limb to limb, and their houses demolished, laid in ruins. If they're successful, they will receive gifts and rewards and great honour from him. And having said this, the king once again demands that they tell him both the dream and the interpretation. We see the second response of the wise men. Look at verses 7 to 9. They don't know what to say. And so they humbly ask a second time that the king tell them his dream and they'll make known the interpretation. And as he listens to them, the king replies in a harsh and accusing manner. He says that they're trying to buy, they're trying to gain time. He says that there's only one sentence for them. He says that he is convinced that they have entered into a conspiracy where they will speak lies and corrupting words until the times change, presumably when he is no longer king. And he closes by saying that if they tell him the dream, then he will know that they are bringing a true, correct interpretation. We see the third response of the wise men. Look at verses 10 and 11. The wise men tell the king that there is not a man on earth who can meet his demand. What he's asking for is humanly impossible. They tell him that no great or powerful king has ever asked such a thing of a wise man before. What the king is demanding is unique, it's unprecedented. And they tell the king that what he's asking for is so difficult that only the gods who do not dwell among flesh could do it. Well, we move from the difficulty to the danger in verses 12 and 13. We see the decree of the king. Look at verse 12. The author highlights that Nebuchadnezzar was angry, furious. He's outraged at what he's hearing from these wise men. And in his anger and in his great fury, he commands that all, not some, not most, all the wise men in Babylon be destroyed. We also see the danger facing Daniel himself. Look at verse 13. The king's decree goes out. The wise men are about to be killed. And this includes Daniel and his companions who have been trained by these wise men. It reminds me of what my home economics teacher said to me in third year. Hugh, if you fly with the crows, you'll get shot with the crows. And and Daniel has been so closely involved with these wise men of Babylon, he's now about to share in their fate. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the consternation of an unbeliever. The consternation of an unbeliever. That's what we see in Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who enjoyed fame, enjoyed power, enjoyed influence. He was a man with a vast and ever-expanding empire. And he has a dream. A dream that seems to indicate that everything that he has been working for, everything that he has been investing in, is under threat. And it leaves him afraid and angry. It leaves him fearful and furious. We might say he goes to pieces. And that's important for us to reflect on. Jim Elliot was a 20th century missionary who was killed by the tribe that he was attempting to bring the gospel to. He's perhaps best known for this quote. 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'll say that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I used to have it written up in my car so that on every pastoral visit, every sermon that I was going to deliver, I would remember that quote. Jim Elliot was a man who, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, didn't live for a worldly position, didn't live for worldly possessions, didn't live for worldly power. Instead, he lived for Jesus. He lived for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has a kingdom that's unshakable, a kingdom that is unbreakable. And that is what every Christian, every believer lives for and can endure the loss of all things for. They are living for this King, living for King Jesus and living for his kingdom. Meanwhile, the unbeliever has no such assurance. This world is all that there is for them. And as such, any threat to what they have worked for, any threat to what they have invested in, is seen as a crisis. It's seen as a calamity. And so as we think about this, friends, I want to ask this vitally important question, whether you are a professing Christian or not. And the question is this. Are you living as someone who believes that this life, this world, is all that there is? Or are you living as someone who believes that there is more to this life, more to this world, there is a better life, there is a better world that is still to come? Some of you have been professing Christians for many years, many decades. Some of you have never professed any faith. But I ask each of you today, are you living as if this life and this world is all that there is? Or are you living, friend, for a better life, a better world that is still to come? That's a disturbing dream. And we then come to a dependent disciple. Look at verses 14 to 23. The author focuses on the confidence of Daniel. Verses 14 to 16, we hear two pleas. We hear Daniel's first plea. Verse 14 and 15, we're told that Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And we're told that Daniel spoke to him with prudence and with discretion. And as he spoke to Arioch, Daniel asked him why the king's decree was so urgent, perhaps so harsh. And Arioch proceeds to tell Daniel about the matter. We hear Daniel's second plea. Look at verse 16. Without any further hesitation, Daniel goes to the king and he asks the king to appoint a time when he might show the interpretation of the dream to him. There's a calmness in Daniel. There's a confidence in Daniel that this isn't an impossible situation that he is facing and being faced with. Well, we move from the plea to the prayer, verses 17 and 18. Daniel now relays the situation to his companions. Look at verse 17. He goes to his house, which he appears to have shared with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his friends, and he makes the matter known to them. Guys, this is what's going on. This is what the king has said. And after relaying the situation to them, Daniel requests that they pray to God. Look at verse 18. He tells him to seek mercies, of the God of heaven. 
Daniel realises that his God is the God of heaven. The God who created the sun, the moon, the stars, the constellations that the Babylonians looked to for guidance and direction. Furthermore, Daniel realises that he and his companions are in need of this God's mercy. His undeserved favour, his grace, they cannot presume upon him. And he tells him to seek the mercies of the God of heaven so that they along with the wise men of Babylon will not be destroyed. We move from the prayer to the praise, verses 19 to 23. We see the revelation beginning of verse 19. We read that the mystery was revealed to Daniel and we read that it was revealed to him in a vision of the night. And after seeing the revelation, we hear the recognition. Look again at verses 19 down to 23. Daniel's first response after receiving this revelation isn't to go to the king and say, O king, live forever. I have received the revelation of your dream. No, Daniel's first response after receiving this revelation, we need is to bless the God of heaven. The God who has shown such mercy and making this mystery known to him. And as Daniel blesses the God of heaven, he bursts into a praiseful prayer. He claims that the name of this God is to be blessed forever. He claims that wisdom and might belong to this God. He claims that this God changes times and changes seasons. He claims that this God removes and sets up kings. He claims that this God gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the understanding. He claims that this God reveals deep and hidden things and knows what's in the darkness and that light dwells with him. He claims that this God is the God of his fathers and he gives thanks and praise to this wise and mighty God for giving him wisdom and giving him might and making known that mystery, that dream and its interpretation to him. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're not just confronted with the consternation of an unbeliever, but also the confidence of a believer, the confidence of a believer. That's what we see here in Daniel too. Daniel, like Nebuchadnezzar, is facing a crisis. His life is in danger. His life is on the line. And in his crisis, Daniel doesn't panic. There's no fear in Daniel, no fury in Daniel. He's so, he's so different to Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, Daniel simply seeks the mercies of the God of heaven. And following the answer to his prayer, he praises the God of heaven for his wisdom and his might. Daniel is being presented here as a man with a remarkable confidence. He is presented as a man whose faith is rooted and grounded in his God. And that's important for us to reflect on. The God of the Bible is the God of heaven. And he is mighty and he is wise. And the Christian places their confidence in this God. Many of you, I know, have probably seen the film The Sound of Music. And in the film, Maria, played by Julie Andrews, is a young nun who faces the daunting task of becoming governess to the unruly Von Trapp children. 
And as she makes her way to the large mansion where the Von Trapp family live, she sings the song, I have confidence, with its recurring refrain, I have confidence in me. I have confidence in me. Well, the Christian certainly doesn't say, neither do they sing, I have confidence in me. Instead, they look to the Jesus who is the God of heaven, the creator of all things, including the sun, the moon, the stars. They look to the Jesus who is both wise and mighty. And they say to him and of him, I have confidence in thee. And so as we think about this, friend, I want to ask, is your life marked by such confidence? You know, sometimes it can be easy for us to say, I'm depending on Jesus when everything's going well. It can be easy for us to say, I believe in the God of heaven who is wise and powerful when the sun is shining. But it's another thing to say this when you're going through a dark season, when you're going through a difficult season, when you're going through a daunting season, when you're going through a discouraging season, when you're going through a disheartening season and the pressure is only intensifying, it's ratcheting up week after week, month after month and year after year. And so I ask you today, friend, is your life marked by such confidence like we see in Daniel? Do you look at Jesus today, friend, and say, He's the one in whom my confidence is placed? A dependent disciple. And then third and finally, we have a dating declaration. Look at verses 24 down to 30, where the author now focuses on the courage of Daniel. The courage of Daniel. Verse 24, we see Daniel's approach to Arioch. We see what Daniel did. We're reminded that Arioch had been appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. Now Daniel approaches him and we hear what Daniel said to him. He tells Arioch not to destroy the wise men of Babylon. Tells Arioch to bring him before the king. And he tells Arioch that he will show the king the interpretation. We move from Daniel's approach to Arioch to his appearance before Nebuchadnezzar. Verses 25 to 30. We see the appearance. Look at verse 25. Arioch brings Daniel before the king in haste. Time is of the essence. The lives of the wise men of Babylon are hanging in the balance. And Arioch tells Nebuchadnezzar that he has found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. It's interesting, isn't it, the way that we see Arioch trying to grasp the situation for his own advantage. Trying to gain some gain for himself. As he says to the king, I have found a man. And after seeing the appearance, we can hear the appeal. Look at verse 26. The author reminds us that Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar in the king's court, and as Daniel stands before the king in the king's court, the king now asks him if he is able to tell him the dream not just the dream, but its interpretation. And after hearing that appeal, we hear the announcement. Look at verse 27 to 30. 
Daniel announces that no wise man, no magician, no enchanter, no astrologer could could show the king the mystery that he has asked for. What the wise men had told the king earlier on, Daniel is affirming and agreeing with. And he then announces that the king isn't to be completely disheartened because there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to the king what will take place in the latter days. And he reinforces this by saying that while the king lay in bed, thoughts came to him. And the revealer of mysteries made known to him what would take place. And finally, Daniel announces that this mystery wasn't revealed to Daniel himself because of any wisdom that he himself had. Instead, it was revealed to him so that the interpretation would be made known to the king. You know, Daniel had the prime opportunity, the perfect opportunity to present himself, parade himself, promote himself before the king. The perfect opportunity to try and gain the rewards, the great honour, the gifts that the king had promised. But Daniel does something else. Daniel, as it were, turns the spotlight away from himself and concentrates the spotlight, concentrates the king's attention on the God of heaven. And so, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see not just the consternation of an unbeliever, not just the confidence of a believer, but also the courage of a believer. The courage of a believer. That's what we see here in Daniel too. Nebuchadnezzar, friends, was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And he was infamous for being cruel, infamous for being vindictive. And the first thing that Daniel, a Judean exile, does as he appears before Nebuchadnezzar is he speaks to him about the God of heaven. Daniel is courageous enough to bear witness to his God, to testify to his God in the most powerful throne room of the world at the time. And that is important for us to reflect on. In his commentary on Daniel, Paul Tanner makes this practical observation. Being a faithful witness is what we are called to be. Sometimes we might feel too timid to approach a person and confront them with the truth. Two things should be kept in mind, however, that will help us to be faithful and courageous like Daniel. No matter how important a person might be, They are only human and subject to God, just like everyone else. And second, their eternal destiny depends upon the decision that they make about Jesus Christ. They need to hear the gospel. And so we need to witness with our lives, but also with our words. Let me give one very powerful illustration and example of this. I read this story a number of years ago and then came across it again this week. It's about a Maasai warrior named Joseph. I'll read it in full. One day Joseph met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. 
Then and there he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus, the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way that his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him, held him to the ground, while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was then dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a waterhole and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received from people he had known all his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. After rehearsing the message he first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you. So that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again he was grabbed by the men of the village. Held down while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, but determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. Friends, that is the calling that is placed on every single Christian. To courageously point people to the God of heaven. Whether that be in the home, whether that be in the school, whether that be in the workplace, whether that be in the supermarket, whether that be in the hairdresser, or whether that be at a Christianity Explore course that we are running at the end of this month and needing volunteers for. And so I close with this question. Is your life marked by such courage? Can I ask you today, friend, are are you pointing people to the God of heaven? Can I ask you today, friend, are you proclaiming Jesus in whatever place he might have put you in? Are you proclaiming the God of heaven? And if you're not, friend, I don't want you to go away today thinking that I've just lambasted you. Rather, I want you to go away today thinking to yourself, well, I feel convicted. And now I'm going to ensure that my life this coming week and in whatever weeks the Lord may give me will be marked by that kind of courage.
I am going to point people from now on to the God of heaven. I am going to point people to Jesus. A daring declaration. Well, friends.